You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, a local body of believers in Quarryville, PA. To learn more about Oak Hill, visit oakhillfellowship.com. Now grab a Bible and a notebook and prepare to be spiritually enriched by God's Word. You can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. And I know what you might be thinking, Mark, (laughs) I thought we just got done with Mark and you'd be right. Um, But if you've been with us for this Advent season so far, you know that in each sermon this December, we have not been looking at the classic Christmas verses hardly at all. We're instead looking at some of Jesus' purpose statements. These are stated reasons from Jesus himself about why he came into the world. That's the purpose behind our, our series, and the title of it is The Reason for the Season. If I could maybe even edit the title, maybe it's even better as The Reasons for the Season, because there's there's so much that Jesus has to say about this subject. And we're doing that this morning by looking at the purpose statement that ties the Gospel of Mark together. And it's this, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Jesus gave this statement in response to his disciples' misunderstandings about the kingdom. They, right before this verse, they wanted to be exalted, and so that's why they wanted Jesus to be exalted. They wanted Jesus to be exalted so that they could be exalted with him. And Ben taught us back in August that Jesus has a different definition of ambition, success, and greatness. And that is largely what's on Jesus' mind as he turns to them and tells them this statement. But we are looking at this verse today through a Christmas lens. And I think it will tell us a lot about why he came. So our big idea from the passage today is this. Jesus came to manifest God's heart by giving his life to purchase us. Jesus came to manifest God's heart by giving his life to purchase us us. Those of you who know me decently well know that I have two kids under the age of two, so it is still fresh in my memory what it is like to be anticipating the arrival of a baby. With Addie, our firstborn, who is also starting to sing. You may have heard her just now, and that's pretty great. Um, with, with Addie, there were, there were lots of things that I knew as fact. I knew them cold before she even got there. First of all, I knew I was a dad. Even though this kid was not fully here yet, I knew that that life in there was real, and I helped create it, and I was already a dad. And that in and of itself was kind of crazy, but I knew that. I also knew that I loved her. I didn't know much about her. I didn't even know that she was a she yet, Um, but I knew that regardless of the details of this baby, I would spend the rest of my life caring for and protecting her, and I knew that. God made it clear to me through his word that all of these thoughts and more about fatherhood, the things that I thought and knew and felt toward my child, they were good and right. God's word backed me up on that, and I said amen to it. I knew those things were true. And even though I knew that God would affirm those same things, things were immediately different when I was holding her in my arms. Heidi was asleep after doing all of the hard work. And I just sat there in a chair in the dark, holding this baby girl and weeping. Not just because I loved her so much that I couldn't hold back my emotions, 
I didn't say not that, not just that. Um, I was weeping because I knew in that moment God was dealing with me about those things that I knew. All those things, those truths about who I am, who this girl is, and how God designed us to relate to each other, they were all being driven in deeper now that she was here. Those invisible truths were manifested in this little eight-pound dough ball laying in my arms. And as some kids might phrase it, um, it hit different (laughs) with her there. And I think there are some similarities between what I experienced in that moment and what I would say probably every father experiences in that moment and what the disciples experienced over and over again as they walked with Jesus. Jesus, who was God in the form of a man. Jesus came to manifest God's heart by giving his life to purchase us. And the first way we'll see that, the first thing that we see in this passage, is that Jesus makes the invisible visible. Jesus begins this statement that he gives the disciples with the title that he most often gives himself in Mark, the Son of Man all over the place in Mark. And this is fresh on our minds from a study in Mark. You thought you were going to get away from it, but here we are again. We remember that he is identifying himself as the one from the prophet Daniel's vision, where Daniel said this, he saw, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. I think this kind of language, this kind of thing, can get missed by us as modern Christians. We live in America. We don't have a king. That's kind of our whole thing. We formed our nation because we didn't want to be ruled by a particular king anymore. The closest thing we have to a king is a president, and we're not even required to like him. I am old enough to have lived under five presidential administrations, and I didn't particularly like any of them, and that's okay. Uh, But in the majority of human history, that's not been the experience. The majority of human societies were based upon a king. He defined who they were who they even got to be. Your people, your culture, your whole life was found, and its foundation was found in that kind of a king. What kind of a king ruled over you determined everything. If you served a wise, strong, noble king, your nation flourished, and if you served a selfish, wicked, or foolish king, your nation's days were numbered. But whether he was a good king or not, your role in respect to an earthly king, your role is the same service. You are a servant. The average subject of a kingdom would never even personally lay eyes on their king, but the fundamental way that they would relate to him was by service. Subjection. As his subject, you are subjected to whatever he decides. He's the one wearing the crown. If he's a good and noble king, that service, that subjection can even be joyful. There are Millions of men who were satisfied to give their life on the battlefields of history in service, joyful service to their king. Some, not so much. <laughs> but that can be a joyful thing. If, if you're in a kingdom like this, you 
bear your children in service to the king. You work hard at your trade in service to the king. You live in a kingdom, you live to serve your king. That is not our everyday experience. And so we can miss this. But the hearers of the, the original hearers of Jesus' words understood that dynamic. They were subjected under the thumb of a wicked emperor far away in a pagan land. They dreamed of the day when a good king would rule over them again. They were ready to give their lives to serve a good king. But the throne room imagery that we just read from Daniel, the son of man is not just a good king. He is the ultimate king. He is the king above all kings, super king, the rightful heir to the whole universe. He is perfect, a a cosmic king, the eternal king. There is literally kingly power and majesty beaming out from him as he sits on the throne of heaven in equal authority to God the Father. So when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, I have to imagine it gave the disciples goosebumps to hear him say that. They were so ready for this. They were anxious for Jesus to let loose and really be the Son of Man. This king who comes with clouds and thunder and angel choruses, who leads out in the destruction of all of God's beastly enemies and ushers in the kingdom of God on earth, just like God promised in Daniel's prophecy. They were ready for that. They wanted that. And so here, Jesus says, the son of man, that that cosmic eternal king, he came here not to be served, but to serve. Jesus says, that king, the one you read of in Daniel 7, got off his throne. He personally came into this world, and the primary reason he did that was to serve. The fundamental relationship you and I have with our king, oh, it is service. But Jesus flips the script entirely. The fundamental nature of our relationship with Jesus starts with the king serving us first. With no initial regard placed on what he can get out of our service to him. That's not even being talked of here. This destroys their categories. It destroys our categories. We don't get this. As as Ben said to us in August when we studied this passage, Jesus was telling them that he was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. God put that truth about himself into Isaiah's pen, and Jesus was about to manifest that in front of them. Our eventual submission and service to Jesus was not the motivating factor that coaxed Jesus into entering into our world. If his coming depended on the quality of my spiritual service, he never would have come. Do you believe that about yourself as well? Do you know that? It's true. If if the determining factor to make Jesus come into this world was the quality of the service that you would render to him one day, he would have stayed seated. No, that's not why he came. The heart of God overflowing with self-sacrificial love is what naturally constrained him to come. 
God's motivation to love us does not come from us. It comes from him. And Jesus shows this to us. This is what I mean when I say that Jesus came to make the invisible visible. The disciples had the wrong idea about Jesus, and therefore they had the wrong idea about God. And Jesus came not merely to preach about God's heart, but to manifest it. I've been using this word a lot. The word manifest, it means to make something certain by demonstrating or appearing. Colossians 1.15 says that he's the image of the invisible God. The image, the exact imprint, the clear picture of the invisible God. In John 14, in his discussion with the disciples, Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. He's the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the invisible heart of God made visible. Jesus is saying that to self-sacrificially serve is in the very heart of God. And Jesus is not inventing anything new here. This has been God's heart all along. He has never changed. And the Jewish people, even the disciples, they knew that to an extent. They knew that their God was loving and kind and compassionate. Pastor Ben shared this passage from Hosea last week that describes God's loyal love for his people. The Hebrew word for it is chesed, loyal love. This heart inclination that God has to show infinite mercy to those who are his own. David wrote, that God's chesed, his loyal love, his steadfast love, his loving kindness was better than life itself. The Jewish people knew that God cared for them in a big way. They knew that no matter how bad things looked, that he hadn't given up on them. They knew those things. Isaiah 58, 11 says something like this, says, The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters will not fail. This and a hundred verses like it, they played a part in their understanding of who God is. They knew it. They've learned it. They've memorized it and studied it. Even today, we are teaching, Heidi and I are teaching Addie to memorize Psalm 23. They did that with their kids too. Why? Because it hides the truth in their hearts that God is good. He's merciful. He's kind. They knew that. And so much of that is invisible. It exists on paper. And it's God's word to be sure. So it's, it's not just words on paper. But when the world around you is crumbling, when depression is creeping in, when you can't even see which way is up, they can seem like only words on paper. The Jews in Jesus' day are people who haven't heard from a prophet of God in 400 years. God's promise, which is manifested in the promised land, that's the picture of God's promise to them. 
of his blessing for them. The promised land has been under pagan control for nearly 30 generations. Those Jews who were faithful to God, they knew that he was good and kind and selfless and merciful, and they were trying hard to wait for his promises to come true. But it was difficult because God's goodness and kindness were not easily visible in the world around them. They couldn't see it. Are there people in the room in this morning who can sympathize with that? Do you know the truth about God? Do you know the facts of who he is? The promises of God, you know those, but you still find it hard to hold on to that when you're faced with the tragedies of this world. You are not alone in that. It can be hard. Very hard. In the weakness of our flesh, in the limited scope of what we can understand, it can be hard to wait for and to worship an invisible God. But my friends, the truth that I'm here to preach to you this morning, that we need to preach to ourselves, is that Jesus came into this world to make the invisible visible. Past tense. He has done it. We celebrate Advent. We remember that he has come. And the substance of his first coming gives us real hope, genuine hope to await his second coming. Believer, when you are struggling with believing God's promises and in his plan for the future, preach this to yourself. Jesus has already come. I don't know how many get through this thing, whatever this is in front of me. I don't know how many get through this, but Jesus has already come. Jesus was motivated by the purest love, and he sought me out and served me. That's a fact. He has shown me what God is like. He has shown me God's heart. I'm going to commit to seeking after God's heart as I look to Jesus. Help me, Lord. That is the way that even though he is not physically manifested in front of us like he was for the disciples, that is the way that we hold true to this. We understand that he made the invisible visible. The disciples were living it out in real time. We have it written in God's eternal book. This has happened. This is real. This was done for you so that you can know your God. He manifested his heart. He made the invisible visible. What's the next part of his statement here? He makes the ultimate sacrifice. Now, we sometimes have difficulty with the, the king kingdom thing. Uh, we know what Jesus means when he says he came to give his life. We are Christians. We are people who have turned a Roman torture and, and crucifixion device into a religious symbol. <laughs> we know that Jesus came to die. He came to literally give up his life. Our whole system of faith is based on that. We get it. But the disciples did not get that. Not yet. Remember, again, they were hyped up for this coming son of man that he was going to come on the clouds and slay all God's enemies and establish the kingdom. They didn't understand that the son of man and the suffering servant were the same person. It would be 
astounding enough if that son of man came to this earth and all he did was the miracles that Jesus did. That would be astounding enough that he would come and put on human flesh, get right up in there with us and meet people in their brokenness and really heal them. That would be astounding enough. He would not have been required to do that. He wasn't required to do that. That is nothing but the grace of God that he would do that. It would be astounding enough if he just came to teach. If all he did was reveal more truths about God to us. If all Jesus did was teach us more clearly about what God is like and then left, it would still be more than we deserve. We would still be right to sing praise songs to him on Sunday morning. And he did do that. It's our first, on our first Sunday in Advent, we saw that he came to the world to make the blind see and make those who think they see become blind. He is the light of the world, revealing the perfect standard by which everyone will be judged. That was news to us. That was a clarification of the Old Testament. And Jesus really did serve us by revealing that whole Old Testament and fulfilling it in himself. But all of those acts that he did, they merely attended. They, they went along with the true act of service that Jesus rendered. He came to die for us. We have rightly been reflecting on some deep theological mysteries in church in this Advent season so far as we've worked our way toward Christmas. But this is one paradox that I don't think gets enough of our attention. God died for us. Now, we are treading on some theologically thin ice when we say that. And I'll substantiate that in a moment, but take it at face value for now. Jesus, the Son of God, died. His experience of death was fully real. It was not simulated. It was not just displayed. It was real. And it was more than just physical death. He experienced all the pains of hell, which is the true spiritual death, the infinite judgment and scorn and condemnation of God. He experienced it all. And he did that for you and me, believer. Now, I said we're on thin ice theologically to say that God died because it's only true if you explain and define your terms. God, in all three persons, possesses the divine nature, which cannot die. If God died, we're in theoretical land anyway because he can't be done, but all reality would die with him because everything that exists is based on him. It's held together by him. The Father didn't die on the cross. The Spirit didn't die on the cross, but the Son did die on the cross. But God can't die. How does Scripture solve this mystery? It solves it with another mystery. And we described it recently in our intergenerational time together and also just in Sunday mornings. The hypostatic union is the theological term for it. Jesus being both 100% God and 100% man is critical for any of this to work. Mankind's sinfulness deserves and demands God's eternal judgment. 
God's eternal love is seen and shown as he promises to save a people for himself, even back in Genesis. But the only way that he can uphold his justice and show his mercy to sinners is if someone with the perfect righteousness of God dies in their place. Only God has the perfect righteousness of God, but God cannot die. So, in order to fulfill his promises, in order to save his people, in order to manifest and show and display his heart and his character, in order to preserve his justice, Jesus came to die. He took on a nature capable of experiencing death, real death. And he did that while never letting go of a nature that is impervious to death. He came to serve. Oh, yes. And he offered up the most sacrificial act of service the universe could ever know. I want you to marvel in that with me for just a moment. The eternal God became a man to die for me. The eternal God became a man to die for me. I'm going to break something to you. You don't understand that. None of us can, truly. None of us can fully understand that. Because we are not eternal beings. We don't have God's perfect perspective on these things. We can study and create categories. We can create theological terms, read a bunch of books. We can do our best to make sense of it. But the nature of how it can be, it is, and it must be, a mystery to us. We don't have the capacity to understand it. But what was Ben's challenge to us? few weeks ago. What do you do when you are presented with something, especially in Scripture, something that you can't understand? You don't just put it on a shelf and refuse to give it any thought. No. It is good and right for us to contend with this truth. Jesus, the God-man, paid the ultimate sacrifice for you, believer. Your head cannot understand it. But your heart knows exactly what that means. If you are his, if you have placed your faith in him, your heart understands exactly what that means. Our big idea was this. Jesus came to manifest God's heart by giving his life to purchase us. And the only thing left to talk about is that purchase. How does Jesus put it? To give his life as a ransom for many. Thirdly, we see that Jesus, he makes the payment for our debt. A ransom is just fundamentally, it's a payment for someone's release. In modern English, we kind of only see this word in uh, kidnapping contexts. The kidnappers take someone by force and then they contact the family and they say, if you ever want to see your loved one again, give us $5 million dollars. And then the family starts trying to figure out some way that they can come up with the ransom money. That's the only modern way that we use this word. 
It is the same root idea. It's payment to secure a release, but the kidnapper context is not exactly the analogy that Jesus has in mind here. The, the Greek word that we have translated as ransom, it only appears one other time in the New Testament, so if we're trying to get a better look at it, maybe we go there, except it's Matthew's gospel, and it's just Matthew saying the exact same sentence that Jesus says here. But when, when Jewish scholars translated the Hebrew of the Old Testament into Greek, which was the modern language at the time, they used this word, ransom, a lot in the Old Testament, especially in Exodus and Leviticus. And that's where God gives the details of the law. And the reason it shows so much there, it shows up so much there, is because that is where God tells the Israelites how they ought to handle debt. In Israelite culture, by God's decree, if you found yourself in great debt to someone that you had no ability to repay, God put a provision in the law for you to be able to indenture yourself to them as a form of a slave. You give them everything you have, whether it's houses, livestock, possessions, land, all of that goes toward attempting to pay your debt. And after you've done all that, whatever debt you still owe to them is your ransom price. And that's what you are working to try to pay off. Now, this is not, this form of slavery is not what the Bible calls man-stealing. Um, we're pretty clear about that. That's taking people by force and enslaving them forever, which is the kind of slavery that happened here in the United States and across the world. This is not that. This is a provision for both justice and mercy. The creditor, the person who lent the money, they get back some of the value that they are owed, but the debtor is shown a form of mercy, and he's given a chance to try to make things right. But at any point in that process, while this ransom price is hanging over their head, someone who is wealthy enough and who has the legal right may pay to redeem the debtor by paying the full price of the ransom. Now, Jesus, as he often does, is using an analogy here when he's saying that he's offering his life as a ransom for many. All analogies, even Jesus' analogies, they have their proper limits and they will break down if you try and take them too far. And you can find lots of people online who try to take the detailed Old Testament laws about debt and make a one-to-one -one comparison with everything that Jesus did in salvation. I, you, you can't reasonably go there. But Jesus isn't trying to go there. He's merely saying, I came here to give my life to pay the price necessary for the redemption, for the release of many. There are many people who have a debt hanging over their heads that they cannot pay. And I have come to die to set them free from it. That's what he's saying to them. And we hinted at this earlier, but we have to ask this question. What kind of a debt could be so great that it requires the death of Jesus to pay for it? That is what sin is, my friends. And we can think so lightly of sin. Because because we've never gone a day without sinning. We can be tricked into thinking that sin is normal. And, and what I mean by that is we can commit the logical fallacy that says if something is a certain way, that's because that's just the way it is and that's how it ought to be. 
My friends, it ought not be this way, this sinful world. Ben preached about this recently too. It is not simply human nature to sin. We get that twisted so often. It is sin nature to sin. Sin was not present in the man and woman that God created in the garden. He created them perfect. They had a perfect human nature, but sin nature was added on to it when they first took their first sin. Our first parents were created as bearers of God's image. They were meant to clearly reflect some of God's attributes back to him as they worked the garden, as they tended to it, as they ruled over it, and as they worshipped him. But if we know the story, what did they do instead? What do we do instead with this gift of life and this honor of being made in the image of God? R.C. Sproul calls it cosmic treason. Hear how he describes it. What are we saying to our creator when we disobey him in the slightest point? We are saying no to the righteousness of God. We are saying, God, your law is not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want to do and not what you command me to do. The slightest sin is an act of defiance against cosmic authority. It's a revolutionary act, a rebellious act in which we are setting ourselves in opposition to the one to whom we owe everything. It's an insult to his holiness. And we become false witnesses to God. When we sin as the image bearers of God, we are saying to the whole creation, to all of nature under our dominion, to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, this is how God is. This is how your creator behaves. Look in this mirror. Look at us and you will see the character of the Almighty. We say to the world, God is covetous. God is ruthless. God is bitter. God is a murderer, a thief, a slanderer, an adulterer. God is all of these things that you see us doing. God cannot let that slide. He must not let that slide. Or he's not God. He must judge all sin. And this, what's this infinite debt has been racked up above our heads. This is where Jesus steps in. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That was the payment that was necessary to redeem us. That was the ransom price. And that was the price that he agreed to pay. It's the question of the day. The question you must walk away from here asking is why? Do you ever ask yourself that question? Why? Why would he agree to do it. We have deserved everything coming for us. We've deserved it all. And he deserves nothing but to be exalted, to sit on his throne on high in perfection. He deserves nothing but that. And why in the world would he agree to pay this price? 
we are not worthy of the price he paid. Forget being worthy to sit at his right hand and at his left when he comes into his glory. We are not worthy of being left alive for another second. We aren't worthy. And that's the point. He doesn't need us. We aren't worth the price he paid. If we were worth the price he paid, it'd be no different than any other transaction. This was the most infinitely lopsided exchange in history. And so, we are left with only one conclusion. He paid our infinite debt and saved us because he wanted to. There was no external motivator. The desire to save us, regardless of the cost, came from within his own heart. Our big idea from the text today was this. Jesus came to manifest God's heart by giving his life to purchase us. We cannot comprehend that kind of love. Love that is willing to go through that much to save someone who has no ability to repay. Is that what you see when you look at a nativity? When you see that baby lying in the hay, does your heart tremble with amazement that the eternal God became man so that he might die to purchase you for himself? I want to close with this. The Puritan minister, John Flavel, he wrote this short dialogue imagining what that conversation between the son and the father might have been like before he took on human flesh to come save us. Now again, John Flavel knew that you couldn't really wrap your mind around this. He knew we couldn't fully understand it with our minds. But in his heart, he was led to write this. The father says, my son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? And the son replies, Oh, my father, such is my love and pity to them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their guarantee. Bring all your bills that I may see what they owe you. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no after reckonings with them. At my hand, you will require it. I would rather choose to suffer your wrath than they suffer it upon me, my father, upon me. Be all their debt. The father says, but my son, if you undertake for them, you must pay the last penny. Expect no discounts. If I spare them, I will not spare you. And the son says, I am willing, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all to me. I am able to pay their debt. And though it will undo me, though it will impoverish all my riches and empty all my accounts, yet I am content. 
Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.